So, but anyway, we're doing this thing about eschatology, and I, I was kind of, I thought, man, why did I even do this? But, but then I just was praying this week, and I really felt the Lord's pleasure over it. And I, my heart in doing this is I want you to understand the history, because I, number one, I think it's interesting, but I also think it's important that we understand how we got where we are and what, why we think some of the ways that we do, and, and understand some of the strengths and weaknesses. And I, I want you to be an informed church. I really do. I, I, and I want you to not just understand one perspective on this because I think that having just one perspective, uh, it's, it, it's problematic because there's problems, uh, as I'll read you at the end, there's weaknesses to all four of the views. And uh, so you, can, you don't need to move camps really, but you can adopt some of the strengths of the other views and you'll, you'll be better for it. Okay? So, uh, last week, I haven't got this up on the website yet, but I'll, I'll get it up there. We're going through history, and we're talking about the, the views of end times throughout history. And uh, it's hard to do this because this is one area where there's not just a few opinions, there's like 50,000 nuanced opinions. And they fall into various categories and, but, but the categories sometimes get blurred, and so be, pe- people have different nuanced opinions. So please understand that I'm painting with broad strokes, and I, I may not, I'm, I'm trying to honor everybody. I'm trying really hard, but it's, it's, just give me some grace, all right? So, so anyway, for the first 300 years, we said last week, of the church, the main view was this thing called historic premillennialism. And historic premillennialism believes... It's called premillennialism because Jesus is going to come back prior to the millennium, prior to the thousand years. And it sees the church actually going through the tribulation. Now, it, some people didn't necessarily immediately think of it as seven years. Uh, Irenaeus, or Irenaeus, I can, never can remember how to say his name, he seems to have thought that maybe it was three and a half years based on some stuff in Revelation. But anyway, the point is, you go through the tribulation, Jesus comes back, and the church is raptured, it's all one event, and then you move into a literal thousand-year reign of Jesus on the earth. At the end of that, Satan's released from prison, there's one more rebellion, and then uh, God destroys the devil, and, and then we move into the new heavens and the new earth. That was the predominant view, but it was not the only view. So that's, you know, kind of confusing to me because you'd think, you'd think if you could just get to the earliest writing that you would know what the answer is, but, but no. So anyway, that's part of why we are where we are. Um, after that, we get to Augustine, and Augustine is one of the biggest writers of theology, and he was an amillennialist. Everybody say amillennialist. And so he said that, no, we're already in the millennium, and, and the millennium represents the church age. And there will be one last rebellion at the end, but we'll move immediately into the new heavens and the new earth when Jesus comes back. So he was post-millennialist in the sense that he believed Jesus came back at the end of the millennium. Uh, and that that, again, is all... all one event. I went over that in somewhat some degree of detail last week. That view was the predominant view from uh, Augustine, who was born in like 354, all the way past the Reformation. You would have thought that maybe Luther and the, the reformers 
would have broke from that because they were trying to get away from a lot of Catholic theology. But they loved Augustine. And they thought Augustine, they thought the Catholic Church was not Augustinian enough. They thought that they needed to go back and be, be more grace-oriented and more focused on Augustine's theology. So they maintained the amillennial stance. Luther was also something called a historicist. Um, you might not be familiar with that. It's not a major view anymore, so that's why I didn't cover it. Historicists believed that Revelation is history written in advance from the time of, of the writing of the book through the end of the world. And it, so it's not, it's not all going to be fulfilled in the future, and it wasn't all fulfilled in the past. It was being progressively fulfilled throughout history. And they saw the various vials and bowls and things like that as different historical events throughout time, and they were trying to figure out which bowl represented what. And, and later, Jonathan Edwards thought that the fifth vial, I think it was, actually was the Reformation, and that that was a judgment that God poured out on the Catholic Church. I don't agree with that view. Pretty much nobody agrees with that anymore because history continued past when the end should have happened. Okay, so there, there, ended, up, there ended up being too many events in history for historicism to work. So everybody's like, well, that can't be, well, yeah, so we didn't, so it's, it, that's not what we believe anymore. But he was an amillennialist and a historicist. And uh, so anyway, historicism, it was really popular for a while because it identified Babylon with the Roman Catholic Church because uh, you got to understand, post-Reformation, these, it, it wasn't just that Catholics and Protestants didn't go to the same church, it's that they were killing each other. Yeah. And it was really bad. And so the, the, a lot of the early Reformers thought that the Catholic Church was Babylon, and Luther thought that the papacy, the institution of the Pope, that that was the Antichrist. Um, and so that occasionally you may still hear somebody thinking that the Pope is the Antichrist. In my opinion, that's, that's just some craziness left over from the Reformation. Okay, so we need to understand that, that we may not agree with our Catholic brothers and sisters about everything, but they love Jesus, and, and, and so they're for us, and we're for them, and so, so just we ought to leave all that. That's, that was 500 years ago, so let's, let's get past it. So anyway, then... then after Luther in the 16th and 17th century in England and then the 17th, 18th, all the way up to the start of the 19th century, a third view became very popular, which was called post-millennialism. Everybody say post-millennialism. post-millennialism. And, and post-millennialism, like it says, believes that Jesus is going to come back at the end of the millennium. So it's very similar to amillennialism, and it reads Revelation much the same way. So Satan was bound at the cross... Um, the, the first resurrection is either the saints living in heaven with God during the, during the thousand years or it's uh, the new birth, okay? And, and so we're in this time, but, but a lot of post-millennialists didn't actually think we were in the millennium yet. They thought it would happen as revival and missions work spread throughout the earth, and Jonathan Edwards was the biggest proponent of this. I used to not like Jonathan Edwards because all I had read was Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God in 10th grade. 
and I thought that was not very good, and I still disagree with that characterization of God, but I've come to understand that Edwards is like, in America, he's like the greatest theologian that's ever lived in America. And uh, he, he was triggered the, you know, the Great Awakening, and lots and lots of people gave their lives to Jesus because of his ministry. So I didn't necessarily agree with all that he taught, but he was a great man of God. And the reason that he, he believed that is he, or the reason he, he focused so much on revival is he believed that, that the millennium could occur at any time. And it would trigger like a golden age of heaven on earth. And so Kenneth Gentry is a modern proponent of that. And so what, what differentiates post-millennialism from amillennialism is that it expects the gospel will win the victory throughout the earth, fulfilling the Great Commission. The overwhelming majority of men and nations will be Christianized, righteousness will abound, wars will cease, and prosperity and safety will flourish. Well, I mean, that sounds good to me. Um, let's read Matthew 13, 32. Uh, start actually at verse 31. They use this parable. So it's funny, the amillennialists used the parable right before this about the wheat and the tares. The postmillennialists like this one better. <laughs> it says, The kingdom of heaven is like a grain of a mustard seed, which a man took and sowed in his field, which is indeed the least of all seeds. But when it's grown, it's the greatest among the herbs, and it becomes a tree, so that the branches of the air come and lodge, or see the birds of the air come and lodge in the branches thereof. So the post-millennialists uh, believe the Great Tribulation is already accomplished at 70 A.D., and, and basically they just expect to win. They expect the kingdom of God to grow, for uh, entire nations to be discipled. Not that everybody on the planet is going to become a Christian. That's not their expectation. Um, or even that Christians would control all the governmental functions or anything like that. They just believe that things are going to become similar to, like I, I went on a missions trip to the Dominican Republic, and the Dominican Republic is in a unique time in their national history. You can openly preach the gospel in all of their schools. You can do altar calls. You can pray for the sick. They have the Bible on their American flag. The evangelists there went and preached an open-air meeting in their town square in their big city, and the police came, and he thought he was going to get in trouble because he didn't get a permit or anything. And the police said to him, can you come back here every, day, every week and preach this message from this, from this park? And so, obviously, that's different than the, than the country we live in. And so he encourages people to come there and, and witness because he's like, look, it's harvest time in the DR. They're open to the, to the gospel. And so the expectation is that that uh, all the nations of the earth will become Christianized like that. There's still all kinds of problems in the Dominican Republic. It's not like everything's perfect, but there's a major Chris Christian influence. Does that make sense? And so it anticipates that earth will become like heaven enough, and they use this example of like Caesar would try to get uh, the nations that he conquered, the cities that he conquered, to be like Rome. And when they were Roman enough, then Caesar would come visit. So the expectation is that, that the cities of the earth will become, you know, the nations of the earth will be the, become the kingdoms of our Lord, and then Jesus will come back, okay? And so Edwards thought that we could help this process along. I, I did a whole bunch of typos in this sentence, but it should say that the millennial 
the millennial golden reign would be triggered by revival and missions work. He therefore sought to promote missions and revival with a threefold strategy. And I like this strategy, even though I think, you know, regardless of what I think about the eschatology, this is a good strategy. He said, we're going to promote stories of revival. So when we hear of God doing something in one part of the world, we need to write about it and tell somebody else about it. It's the principle of the testimony. How many of you have heard that principle? When a testimony is given, it releases power for the miracle to be replicated. So Edwards understood that. And so he said, we got to tell people about it, and then we got to preach the truth. That's a novel idea. <laughs> no, no. I mean, we got to keep preaching the gospel, and we got to tell people about Jesus, and then we got to pray that, that heaven will come to earth. We got to pray for revival and stuff, and, and some of that theology we might say differently, but the point is that he was trying to encounter and engage with, with the glory of God, all right? So Edwards, I think, was a, was a great man of God. I don't, you know, he was a historicist too, and he was wrong about that. But anyway, he did a lot of good things. So in post-millennialism, there is still an anticipated short-lived rebellion at the end of the millennium. But beyond that, it's this, this is the most optimistic of all eschatologies. So if you put them on a scale of pessimistic to optimistic, post-millennialism is the most optimistic. What's its main strength? So I'm telling you all their strengths. So the main strength of this view is its confidence that the church can be victorious in its mission to disciple nations. It expects us to win and accomplish what Jesus called us to do. It has a galvanizing effect on the church, spurring it on. So who are some modern postmillennialists that you may have heard of? Shay Ann and H. Rock Church. He's a major charismatic leader over in California. You may not have heard of him. I heard him at a conference. He's a good, good Bible teacher, but he... He espouses post-millennialism, and he loves Jesus. You don't have to agree with his, his eschatology, but, you know, there's a guy, all right? And then if you want to read about post-millennialism, I would recommend Kenneth Gentry's book, He Shall Have Dominion. It's a theology book, so it's like this big, but it, it uh, explains the view really well. Okay, so after that... Um, in the 19th century, in 1861, we have this, the start of the Civil War. Just prior to that, a fourth view is being synthesized by John Nelson Darby in about 1830, and it's called dispensational premillennialism. Everybody say dispensational, dispensational. premillennialism. Okay, so that's, I know there's a lot of, theologians love their isms and you know, all this. Okay, so... Uh, it's sometimes traced earlier back to a guy named Edward Irving, but he, he ended up being kind of a nut at the end of his life, so a lot of times they'll disavow him. But anyway, uh, what happened, though, is post-millennialism expects the world to, to, to like, get better, right? But, but then in America, we have the Civil War, and the Civil War is horrible. I mean, brothers are killing brothers. There's I don't know, forget the number, but a lot, a lot of people die. It's really brutal. It's really depressing. And that causes faith in post-millennialism to like tank because they're looking around, they're thinking, man, the world's not getting better. It's getting worse. We're in trouble. And so that went down and, and the popularity of dispensational premillennialism began to flourish. And particularly uh, after World War I, and actually, it was getting really popular too, but World War I and World War II also made, it, it really made post-millennialism 
go down. So it's only been actually in the, in the recent few decades that it's had any emergence um, in America. It's, uh, all, all millennialism is still probably, I think, worldwide the most, the most popular view, uh, but I'm just talking about America because we live here. So anyway, um, what's dispensational premillennialism believe? It believes, like the historic version, that Jesus will come back prior to a literal millennium. Um, the main differences are, are in its like interpretive approach to Scripture. So in its original incarnation, it saw completely different destinies for Israel in, in the church. Um, now, they've changed, progressive dispensationalists have changed that a little bit because they felt it was, it was too extreme. Uh, but anyway, the point is that, that there are different periods throughout time, like innocence, conscious, conscience, human government and stuff, and God deals with different people differently in different periods of time. And there was a Jewish age, and now there's the church age. But according to Daniel's 70 weeks prophecy, there's, there's seven years left of the Jewish age. And so at the end of this period, there's going to be a, a, a reverting back to the, the Jewish timeline, and God's going to finish dealing with the nation of Israel. So because of that hermeneutical approach, they believe that the church needs to be raptured out of here prior to that seven-year tribulation so that God can return His attention to the nation of Israel. So 2 Thessalonians, I, I, try, I can really only give you like one scripture per, per view, but we'll just do this. This is an important one in dispensationalism. So 2, Corinthians, or 2 Thessalonians 2, verses 1 through 8. So this, this, this is one of the hardest passages in the Bible. Um, if you want a really interesting discussion of it, the most interesting discussion I've read is in um, Sam Storms' book, Kingdom Come, and he talks about all the different perspectives, and then at the end he says, I don't know what it means. But it's, it's, the, most, it's the most interesting discussion, uh, and I think it's the most even-handed one. Augustine, who was a genius, uh, he said, I have no idea what Paul's talking about in this passage. Um, but let's just read it. It says, Now we beseech you, brethren, by the coming of our Lord Jesus and by our gathering together unto him, that you be not soon shaken in mind nor troubled, neither by spirit nor by word, nor by letter from us, as the day of Christ is at hand. Let no man deceive you by any means, for that day shall not come, except there be a falling away first. So uh, a lot of times people see that as an apostasy of the church. Some dispensationalists will argue that that's actually the rapture of the church, and it's the, 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 the um, uh, tribulation and stuff won't come unless the church departs first. Uh, and that the man of sin be revealed, the son of perdition, uh, who opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God or that is worshipped, so that he as God sits in the temple, showing himself that he is God. Remember, I told you not these things when I was with you, and yet you know not these things. And now you know. Now this is the, the weird part. Now you Okay, so it's now you know. So it's something presently they understand. <coughs> uh, 
that withholdeth that he might be revealed in his time. For the mystery of iniquity is already at work. Only he who now letteth, or he that now restraineth, will restrain until he is taken out of the way. And then shall that wicked be revealed, uh, whom the Lord shall consume with the spirit of his mouth. Okay, so a lot of people see that as the, the Antichrist, and it's the Antichrist can't be revealed until this restraining force is removed. The big question is, what's the restraining force? So the dispensationalists will argue that it is either the church or the Holy Spirit in the church, and when the rapture happens, that will open the door then for the seven-year tribulation to occur. Uh, historic premillennialists will say, no, it's, it's natural government uh, that's restraining because Paul says that, uh, you know, that governmental systems are a, a threat to wickedness. He actually says that, and um, there, there's a truth there. And then postmillennialists see it totally differently, and I don't have time to go into that. So anyway, um, so they, they believe, so there's, they're in the future, there'll be a pre-trib rapture, there'll be a seven-year tribulation. At the end of that, Jesus and the church will come back, and then Jesus will reign for a thousand years, literally on the church and, and everything like that. After that happens, the same as in historic premillennialism. All right, the main strength of this view, in my opinion, is that it emphasizes that the church is not appointed under wrath. 1 Thessalonians 5.9, Paul says that, we're not being appointed unto wrath. And, uh, and that's true. So the wrath of God is not going to fall on the church. And, and so they, they read Revelation and they see a lot of the wrath of God. And so they, they think, well, that, so we've got to not be here during that. All right. Who are modern dispensationalists? So my pastor, Lawson Purdue, is a dispensational, is a uh, dispensational premillennialist. Uh, John Hagee, if you've heard of him, my favorite dispensational premillennialist book is is by Dr. David Jeremiah. Uh, what in the world is going on? So, <laughs> which is a great title. I mean, uh, so if you want to read about that view, I would read his book. If you haven't read it, it explains it really well. Okay, now this is the part that can potentially make everybody upset. I'm going to tell you what's wrong with everybody's view. Because there's every view in here. And, you know, the trouble I have is like, I think, I think for example, that the uh, post-millennialist reading of Ezekiel is, is the best, the end of Ezekiel. But I think that the premillennialist reading of that verse in, in 2 Thessalonians is the best. And so, what do you do with that? Well, I don't know. So, so, so anyway, um, uh, uh, so, but anyway, all these views have problems. What are the weaknesses? Premillennialism in both incarnations tends to be pretty negative and reactionary. Uh, it's often alarmist and sometimes does not allow itself for planning long-term strategies to win the lost and disciple nations. Now, that's not, that's not all of those people, but, but often people will take that eschatology and use it as an excuse not to plan for the future. And, and a huge uh, number of people, I think, were negatively influenced by Hal Lindsey's book about the, the, the end world's about to happen. And so you can, I mean, you can ask people. Lots of people didn't 
go to college. They didn't get a career. They didn't get married and have kids. They didn't save for retirement uh, because they thought that, that the rapture could occur at any moment. And maybe it can, but not planning for the future and not engaging ourselves in, in discipling nations. Jesus said, look, the, the, the mission is go and preach the gospel and make disciples of all nations. Did he say that? Okay, do you understand? That takes planning. If you really want to do it, it you have to have a long-term strategy. Now, what if Jesus comes back before? Then, hey, we'll all celebrate. But, but failing to plan ahead and failing to invest long-term in people, this is why we do the church the, the way that we do it. And we, we invest in people and we have savings accounts. And we, you know, Well, Pastor... Why should, we ought to just spend all that money to... Well, no, we're spending lots of money to reach the lost and do different things, but we also have a plan for the future. Because if Jesus doesn't come back, I don't want to set up this stuff for 30 years. Josh says amen to that. So, so in my opinion, failing to plan for the future is a clear, it's a clear violation of Jesus' really clear command to disciple nations. I cannot sacrifice the really clear commands because of some obscure prophetic passage. Okay? And so a lot of premillennialism, I think, can be really negative and it can become overly rigid in its view. And I might step on some toes here. I'm not trying to be mean. But, but like a major prophet gave this prophetic word one time and he said, he said, the next great missionary move is going to come out of China. Now, a dispensationalist responded to that by saying, that can't be God because out of China is going to come a two million man army to persecute Jerusalem. Now, here's what I would say. I have no idea whether or not there is going to be a two million man army come out of Jerusalem. China to persecute Jerusalem. There may very well be. But what if it's not for a thousand years and in the meantime God wants to use China in the next great missionary movement? I think I have an obligation not to be so rigid in my view of the future that I I can't believe that foreign nations will come to Christ. think that's wrong okay that doesn't mean you have to change your whole theology I'm saying be open to the possibility that you don't understand God had got Jesus had a plan about when he was going to do miracles and Mary changed his mind do you understand that what what if what if a whole bunch of Chinese people really love Jesus and they want to change the destiny of their nation. Do you know a lot of Chinese people really love Jesus? There's a huge, huge underground church movement going on right now. I have no idea whether or not that prophetic word's true. But I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to believe it. I'm going to hope that it's true. Because why not? Because all it costs me is disappointment. And the church is deathly afraid of disappointment, and we need to get over it. Disappointment is not the worst thing you can experience. Yeah. 
Believing, believing small and never taking risks is not, is, it's not faith. If I believe big and I miss it, hey, then I'm among a lot of great people. Okay? Now, what's the danger of amillennialism? Amillennialism is just sort of like, it, it's just sort of like, well, there's not impending doom approaching, but we probably aren't going to totally win either. And so it can become very sort of wrapped up in just the everyday stuff of life. And it can become almost apathetic at times. And it can just be like, well, I'm just going to focus on me and my four or five and, and no more. And, and that's a problem too. So amillennialism sometimes lacks a cogent view of the future. And so it's not, it doesn't compel people to do stuff. Um, post-millennialism, even though it's hard for me to fault people for being overly optimistic, but I think it can get into over-optimism. And it doesn't seem to leave room for the recurrent reality of persecution. Because Jesus said we are going to have persecution, and, and Paul said if all that live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. And so if the whole world's going to be Christianized, that doesn't necessarily seem to leave room for that, and that might be a problem. Additionally, some post-millennialists have pushed into what is called dominionism, uh, which at first I thought I liked because that's a cool name, but when you study it, <laughs> dominionism is trying to control society, not, not come under and serve with humility. And that's not the model that Jesus presented. So I want to influence society for, for... How many of you want to influence society for God? Yeah, so, so I'm with... I, I, I don't know that I agree of all their interpretive stuff, but I love the post-millennialist mindset that we're going to go out there and win and, and disciple nations. But we got to do it in humility and come under people and not be trying to control somebody. Okay? So those are all the weaknesses. What can we conclude after this survey? There have been periods, this, if you go through the history, there have been periods of great revival and growth during the times when each view has held sway. Eschatology matters, but maybe not as much as people often think. If you get past some of the main points. Uh, because it, in my study of, of history, I can't find really where the eschatology has held people back from revival, except in this, in this one modern incarnation, which is that is, and you guys probably aren't familiar with this because most of you have been in a lot of spirit-filled churches, but, but one of the major proponents of dispensational premillennialism was C.I. Schofield. And he put it in his Schofield. Does anybody have a Schofield Bible? And so Schofield was also a cessationist. And cessationism believes that there aren't any miracles anymore. And so it's a very negative view. And if you combine that with, with this belief that we're just sliding towards the Antichrist over controlling everything, uh, then the Antichrist can do miracles, but, but Jesus can't. And, and so it, people that are cessationists and dispensational premillennialists, they don't have much hope of revival. And so I think that that's a problem. I don't, and, but I think the problem isn't the dispensationalism. I think it's the cessationism. Okay, so I think that's actually a bigger, a bigger problem. What else can we conclude? Eschatology is a difficult subject. It's fun and exciting, but we must not become so rigid or dogmatic in our thinking that we demonize other Christians 
or lose hope for the discipling of nations. So my main point, so I was trying to give you a broader view of this thing because a lot of people have, have grown up in the last 150 years and thought, well, there's only one view. And most of the rest of the world has believed a lot of different things for, for a lot of time. That doesn't mean they're right, but it means we ought to not demonize them and we ought to recognize that, that maybe we don't have this whole thing totally figured out. I think we need to approach it with humility. So people inevitably will ask me, Pastor Max, what do you actually think about all this stuff? I don't really know, um, and I, you can't force me to have an opinion, but I, I, am, I do have some core values that I would encourage you to adopt, and you can adopt these regardless of what camp you're in, all right? So I personally am believing for continued worldwide revival. Amen. I believe there's revival going on right now. There's, there's millions of people coming to Jesus I'm believing for that to continue. There have been lots of prophetic words that a billion people will come to Jesus in the last days. How many of you can believe for that? You can believe for that regardless of, what, of what, which of these things you fall into. I think that's more important than when the rapture hit is. It's not as fun to debate. And it might require you to actually get involved in the harvesting. Instead of debating, <laughs> number two, I, I purpose to honor anyone who loves Jesus regardless of what they think about the future. Number three, while I believe that Christ will return soon, I believe we must plan as though He won't. I believe, therefore, in investing long-term in people, institutions, education, stocks, etc. That's what I'm doing anyway. So, I refuse to live in fearful reaction to world events. I don't know whether the devil is bound or not as far as Revelation 21 through 2, but I do know this, he was really defeated by Jesus. Colossians says that. He marched him through the Ark of Triumph. Yep. He cut off his, t- his thumb and his, and his big toe and paraded him around naked. That's what the picture is there in, in Colossians yep. 2. So I'm not going to empower him by partnering with, with him through fear of his schemes and stuff like that Amen. and over-focusing on all that. And something ought to rise up in you. I mean, I, you know, maybe I'm weird, but when I... When I hear people talk about, well, the Antichrist is coming and stuff, and they think I ought to be afraid of that, I'm like, do you understand who lives inside me? I mean, I'm, I'm, the glory of God lives on the inside of me. Jesus ain't afraid of no Antichrist. He's not. I love, you know, I love Tyler and Felicia over here, amazing. They want to go into this Africa and preach to the witch doctors and stuff. That ought to be your attitude. Who cares if they got some demonic power? You got Jesus in you. I prayed for some Satanists and some, I mean, you know, they don't have a greater power than us. You ought to balk at all that fear-based whatever. I don't know what's going to happen, but I know Jesus is going to win. The church is going to be relevant. We're going to go out in a blaze of glory. 
And then lastly, we must not allow any beliefs, eschatological or otherwise, to excuse us from our clear assignment to disciple people and bring heaven to earth. So I can't use my eschatology to, to explain away some reason I can't be involved in some missions movement or give to, you know, let's believe God. And if we're disappointed, then we're disappointed. All right. Everybody okay? Okay. I hope you're encouraged. Um, next week, we'll, we'll go back to some of the more stuff that I normally do. But to me, the history is really interesting. Uh, and if you read some of those books, I'd encourage you that if you want to study eschatology, you owe it to yourself not just to read one perspective. You might confuse yourself, but just, just go back to Jesus and be like, look, because, because I would never recommend you go read some legalistic stuff, okay? But this is an area where there's lots of different interpretations, and I can see the validity of a, of a lot of the different things. And so I would encourage you that this is an area where it's okay to step outside your normal circle and, and read a little bit. Nothing bad will happen to you. If you, keep the, if, you keep the, if you keep the fundamentals, the fundamentals. And you don't become a, a cessationist. <laughs> okay. All right. All right. Let's all stand up. If I could have my prayer team come down here. We believe in miracles. We believe God heals. There's lots of people here that would be dead if Jesus didn't heal. So thank God for, for Jesus. If you need prayer, you can come down here. We'd love to agree with you. I'm a